Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 30. Genesis chapter 30 on your, in your pew Bible, that is page 21. And sort of continuing in the idea of, of exhaustion, of what the exhaustion that life gives you. Um, there are strivings, and there is competition uh, in the world, and I don't know how many of you are very competitive. Uh, I'm competitive in certain settings. If somebody picked, asked me to come play basketball, I promise you, I, I would go, I would tell them what a bad choice they made in, in putting me on the team. I can't run, I can't jump, I can't shoot, and those are some of the most integral parts of basketball. Uh, but if I was on the basketball court playing, I would not be competitive at all. You wouldn't see any part of the ugliness of co competition uh, come out in me. But I promise you this, if you sit around the table with me playing a board game or playing something like hearts or spades or there's a game called pitch, anybody ever heard of pitch? It's one of my favorite games. I love it. Uh, if you ever asked me to sit around the table and play that with you, you'd see it, all right? And it might get ugly sometimes, all right? I am competitive. Uh, I have a competitive spirit about things for which I can be competitive. If I cannot be competitive at it, well, then I just step back and say, all right, let's just try to have fun here and not break an ankle. Um, there is a competitiveness in me. Uh, Susie is the polar opposite of me. She avoids anything with competitiveness, and therefore she and I do not play the same, do not like the same kind of games. She likes games, but she likes those kinds of games that sort of just turn into a laughing free-for-all, you know? Spoons, loves spoons, because who cares if you win at spoons, all right? Dutch Blitz loves Dutch Blitz, because who cares if you win at Dutch Blitz, all right? Dutch Blitz requires a lot of speed, and I have no speed in anything uh, in life, uh, so I'm super uncompetitive at it, uh, but she's very competitive at that, except that there's no competitive spirit in here. It, it, in her, it, just, it just turns into a laughing free-for-all. She loves it. Uh, the only game that we probably both like together maybe is Scattergories or something like that. Uh, she's just having fun, but I am trying to win, even at Scattergories. Okay? Uh, I had a friend who, uh, he was so competitive. Uh, there's this game called, is it called Speed Uno? And it's such that you, he's, a, he's a serious card player, and he will make a strategy on anything. But when it comes to speed uno, somebody can play a card, and everybody has to trade hands. And he actually threw his hand down and got up one time at speed uno because he was about to win. And anyway, blah, blah, blah. Well, I don't know. We have this competitive spirit in us uh, and this comparing spirit in us, uh, even from even from being small children, uh, and this competing, and this I gotta have, and I gotta have that other people don't have. And when it's little kids, we laugh at it. When it's little kids, we laugh at it. Uh, with, with little bitty kids, oftentimes, if you, if you were to say, well, what toy do you want? If they answered honestly, they answered, I want all the toys that everybody else has right now. And if I took them, and they got other toys, I'd want those. I only want the toys that I don't have. Those are the ones I want. Um, and then as you grow up, as you grow up, uh, it's, it's sort of uh, the, whatever the newest toy is out there, uh, everybody wants to compete or compare or strive to get that new thing, uh, and they compete at it. 
Uh, and, and, you know, a few years ago, the, the fidget spinners came out, and every kid had a fidget spinner, and I'm sure that they sat around and compared each other's fidget spinners. Is my fidget spinner better than your fidget spinner? And, uh, uh, and all that kind of thing. So we, uh, from a very early age, we, we compare ourselves with other people, and we want to be the best. We want to know that we're the best. We want to uh, win. And then, of course, we get into actual athletics in, in uh, middle school, junior high, high school, and that's when they really do keep score, and there really is a winner and a loser. And uh, people will go to great lengths uh, to win, to go as... To, to do, uh, sacrifice everything else for this athletic thing so that they can win. And uh, in Oklahoma, football is as big as it is in Texas. And, I mean, there are people who the entire family life is centered around our, our kid and his competitiveness and his, um, his or his, her participation in this athletic event. And they do it all day, every day, because they will be the best someday. And it doesn't work out that way for them uh, all the time, then how devastating it is. Uh, because nobody ever told them the truth that only the half percent of half percent of half percent ever make it to professional sports. Uh, but it doesn't end there. You'd think that after we graduate high school, whew, we can be done with all that. We're grown up a little bit more. We're more mature. But it doesn't end there, does it? It goes right into which college did you get into? Which major did you get into? Which postgrad or whatever did you get into? Or what job did you get? Or, I bet I can marry better than you can marry. Or, I bet I can have more kids or whatever. I don't know. You know, I, I don't, people don't compete for the number of children. In our passage today, they're going to compete for the number of children. People don't particularly compete for the number of children these days. But they do compete with their kids. Don't get me wrong. People do use their children in competition. They do see their kids and say, i got to have my kids. My kids got to be better than your kid. And as you grow up and you're just all the time competing, trying to win, striving for another promotion or another raise or to have your department come out better than everybody else's department or whatever it is until you get to a certain age and then it's, can I retire faster than everybody and get the bigger RV or see the more states or whatever it is? I saw a lot of that in my family growing up. And then... Don't get me wrong, it doesn't even stop then. Because when you talk to the old folks around here, especially the old men around here, what do they compete about? What they can still do. You had to stop doing that a long time ago, but I can still do it. I can do it with the pain. All right? I may not be able to do it twice, but I can do it once as good as I ever could. I won't be able to do anything else for the rest of the week. But I'll show you up today. All the old men are sitting there like, what are you talking about? I'll be with you soon enough, okay? Don't worry. Why do we strive so hard? Why do we compete so hard? Why do we compare ourselves so much with other people? I'm not another person. I'm just me. How in the world could I possibly be a better basketball player than somebody who's a foot taller than me. And yet, if I was out there playing basketball with them, I would probably end up feeling bad at the end of the game, even though nobody ever thought I could compete with them. Why do I compare myself so much with other people? Why do I have to beat other people so much? Why do I even have to beat myself so much? I was listening to a a baseball game earlier in the week, and this, there's a coach for the Cubs who was the technical advisor for the movie For the Love of the Game. It was a Kevin Costner movie 
where he played a pitcher. And this guy, uh, he, he was a catcher. He was a technical advisor for the movie, but he also played the, the catcher, um, uh, not the actor, but he played, when, it, when, the, when the mask was down and everything, he was the real catcher that was do, doing everything, not the actor. Um, and he said, Kevin Costner was so competitive with himself. And after every scene, after every little section of pitching for the camera and all this stuff, he would say, did I get to 80 mile an hour? Do you think I got to 80 mile an hour? Do, do I, you know, he's an actor. He's not a baseball player. And, and the, the coach, he was just sitting there saying, I don't think so. I'm sorry. You know, he just had to, he just had to tell him the hard truth that I'm sorry, you probably didn't get quite to 80 miles an hour, uh, let alone 95 or, or whatever that real major league pitchers pitch at. And he said he was so competitive, even with himself, for a movie where every ball and strike is scripted, but still quite competitive even with himself. Well, in our passage today, we're going to see a couple of, of, of ladies who, hey, life circumstances, I understand it, the culture that, she's, that they're in, uh, but man, the ugly side can, uh, comes out in their competitiveness. So let's pray, and then let's get into our passage. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this passage of Scripture, Lord. Help us to look at it from out, as outside observers, but also, Lord, help us to empathize and understand and know and say, hey, you know what, I've had that same feeling myself. Put us in this story, Lord, and help us to see you in the story as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 30, starting in verse 1. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. And her sister at this point had had four sons. So she said to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then, he, then she said, Here is Bilhah, my servant. Sleep with her so she can bear children for me, and I too can build a family through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob slept with her, and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Jacob said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and has given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister, and I have won. So she named him Naphtali. All right, let's pause there for a little bit. So if you're not familiar with the story, Jacob is the third patriarch in the Genesis story. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And now Jacob's family is about to grow. God has promised this family, I will make a nation out of you. But Abraham, one child. Uh, Isaac and, and Rebekah, one child, or two, two children, but got one, only one is the chosen one. And so at some point, if God's going to turn this, these people into a nation, there's got to be a, a prolific generation of reproduction somewhere along the line. And we're getting into it right here. And to do that, to do that through, gosh, it's a perfect example of people doing their worst, but God, who is omniscient and sovereign, taking it and making it work into his plan. Because God didn't institute polygamy, but through, uh, through man's action, Jacob ends up with uh, four wives by the end of this passage today. And so this is going to be the generation where God whew, makes the tribes that make the nation. Rachel was not the first wife. She was supposed to be the first wife, but there was some trickery, so she ended up being the second wife. Leah was the first wife, but Jacob didn't love Leah. 
And if you remember our passage from last week, Leah is just completely heartbroken again and again and again because she is doing her duty as a wife. She's doing everything she possibly can, and yet her husband still never loves her. And in this passage this week, we see the other wife and how she feels. She's the preferred wife, and yet she's got this incredible inadequacy because she's got one duty, one great duty. I mean, they have all kinds of duties, but one great duty in the family, and that is to produce children for your husband, and she can't do it. And she gets just overwhelmed with emotion and finally says to her husband, look at what she says, give me children or I'll die. If I can't reach this dream, if I can't win, if I can't uh, compete with other people, if I can't have the thing I've always wanted, what's my life worth anyway? Why don't I just die? And then Jacob says to her, and it's a little terse and a little cold feeling, but it's theologically and scientifically correct. I'm not God. I can't make you have children. You're coming to me with a problem that I can't solve. All I can do for you is what a husband does for his wife. Only God can make you conceive. Only God can do this for you. You cannot blame me for it. So she does. So Rachel, she comes up with her fix. And this fix was not uncommon in those days. It wasn't even uncommon in Jacob's own family. When Abraham's wife Sarah couldn't conceive, they took the servant girl and Abraham uh, slept with the servant girl and had children... Uh, through her. And so this was common. And Rachel claims this child as her own. This slave girl belongs to Rachel. Therefore, her life belongs to Rachel. Therefore, everything she owns belongs to Rachel. Even her children belong to Rachel. And so when her slave girl has children, Rachel doesn't say, well, these aren't mine. She says, these are mine. And that is when you, what you can see is their expression after they have the children. It's not, oh, I love this child so much. Oh, the finally, the pitter-patter of feet in my house. Oh, finally, we're a, a family with children. No, 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 no. God has vindicated me. Ha! I've won. It's not even the joy of the child. It's the joy that I finally now am able to compete. And this, she names him Dan. And Dan is this word that means judge, or here it's, it's vindicate. God has judged. God has vindicated me. I'm back in the game. All right? I'm not being skunked in, in the competition or whatever it is. And then she has this second child, Naphtali. And Naphtali sounds like this word, struggle. But the most interesting thing about that verse and about the birth of Naphtali is what she says. I have had a great struggle with my sister, not with forces of nature, not with God, with my sister. So her focus is still on her sister, still on competing with another person. And... The word great there, she says, I have had a great struggle. Do you know what the word great is there? And if, if you'll have to know a little Hebrew for this to, to really punch you right, okay? And if you don't know it, I'll explain it in a second. What she said was, she didn't say, I've had a great struggle. She said, I've had an Elohim struggle. What is Elohim? It's the name of God. It's the name of God that Abraham used for God. He is Elohim. And what does that mean? What, that tells us what God's name means. He is the great one. He is the great and mighty one. But she has taken it and put that adjective in here to describe her struggle. I have had an Elohim struggle. 
Not just a fear struggle, not just a hard struggle. I've had an Elohim struggle. If I, was, if, if I could take a liberty in the translation, I would say, I have, she should say, I have had a cosmic struggle of heavenly proportions, and I win. I win. And to me, okay, Rachel, maybe your perspective is a little off here. Maybe, I don't want to ever say it's not a big deal. It's a great thing to have children. But number one, she's got four. Now you have two. And you've had them through a surrogate. Why do you think you're winning here? It's because the competition is all that she's thinking about. That's all that she's thinking about. So any victory is the ultimate victory. And if somebody has a very competitive spirit, that's how they see everything. Everything is winning or losing. The most recent victory is the only victory that counts. That is how Rachel is thinking about it here. Well, how do you think, Ra- uh, how do you think Leah is thinking? Well, let's go into verse 9. Let's just see how she thinks of it. Remember, last week we saw great growth in her, where she was seeing that she couldn't make her husband love her. All she could do was have the children, and at the end she said, I'll just praise the Lord. I'll just, I can't change anybody else's mind or heart or feelings about me, so all I'm going to do is do my duty and praise the Lord. So let's see how she reacts this week. Wouldn't you expect for, for her to respond with great maturity? Verse 9, when Leah saw, saw that she had stopped having children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, what good fortune. So she named him Gad. And Gad sounds like this word fortune. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, how happy I am. The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. Well, I wish Leah had learned her lesson last week, but it seemed like this week she hasn't learned her lesson. She's still back into comparing herself with other people. Maybe she's taken her focus off of winning Jacob's um, approval at this point, but she's still very much uh, comparing herself with other people because she sees the child as, this is fortunate, this is happy, this is a great blessing for me. And who's, whose opinion does she care about the most? She says, the women will call me happy. Not God will call me happy. Not my husband will call me happy. Not Rachel will call me happy. Not I'm so happy. It's no, no, no. Everybody else will see how blessed I am. I care about their opinion of me. So she's still looking outward to society for them to recognize how blessed she is. Let's keep going. During the wheat harvest, Reuben, and Reuben is the firstborn. So who knows how old he is, but he's obviously old enough to go out to the wheat harvest. All right? Um, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took my husband away? Will you take my my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He, meaning Jacob, he can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me tonight, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. God listened to Leah, and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. 
Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time, my husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Sometime later, she gave birth to a daughter named Dinah as well. Several very interesting things to point out here. I guess number one, the biggest question here is, what is a mandrake plant? You can go home and look it up, but it's just this little plant that has a, a flower uh, and it has a certain shape leaves. Under the ground, under the ground, it has a tuber-like root that looks like a person from the waist down. Okay, I was looking it up on Wikipedia. Yeah, and uh, and actually, I'll say this: the Hebrew doesn't say, or it says, it says the word of this flower. And later translators have all assumed it's the mandrake plant because that grows wild in that area, and it was known to have the properties described here, okay? But the Hebrew says, Reuben found the love plant. The love plant, okay? And so I looked up mandrakes and what their properties were. Maybe they did have some kind of herbal something or others. Nope. Uh, they are a hallucinogenic that causes delirium. Yeah. It sounds more like a date rape drug to me than anything else. All right, uh, but because of what it looked like, it just it, it looks like a, a waist and two legs coming down. Okay, uh, it's not not terribly dirty, but okay, maybe a little dirty. But anyway, it, uh, and I guess they would take that and they would either eat it or make a tea out of it or something like that. And they believe that it had fertility significance. Fertility significance. Um, and in the ancient world, when you look at all the pagan gods, almost all the pagan gods are fertility gods. Fertility in one way or the other, either people having babies, livestock, livestock having babies, or the ground producing uh, plants to, to eat. Because that's all there is. That's all there is. We have to survive. And we as a clan and a family have to survive. And all of that depends on reproducing. In an agrarian society, reproduction is it. Okay? So the mandrake plant is this this herb that people use for, for their own reproduction. Reuben finds it, and he knows the whole household is completely obsessed with reproduction. So he brings it home to his mother, and his mother says, Ooh, ooh, ooh look what we got. It's rare. I found it. She doesn't have it until Rachel sees it. And Rachel says, eh, Give me, give me, give me, give me. That's the valuable stuff. That's the stuff I need. Uh, what do we have to do here? What do we have to do here? How can I get those in my possession? And so it's very interesting here that Leah comes out and says, okay, 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 I understand. You, you value these things maybe more than I do. Or what can I get for all of these things? And so she doesn't ask for gold, and she doesn't ask for silver, and she doesn't ask for silk. She doesn't ask for chocolate. She says, I want my husband. I want my husband. You see, Leah's not the preferred wife, remember. And Jacob doesn't come to her tent that often only when his other three are not available. So she says, I want the most valuable thing. And also, you're going to take those mandrakes and you're going to use them. And I'm going to take away the person that you need for those mandrakes to work. He's mine tonight. He's mine tonight. And you think of uh, these, this culture as being completely male-dominated. And it is. But when Jacob comes in from the fields that night, she comes out and she says, and what a terrible thing to say. You have to stay with me tonight. I paid for you. You're mine. 
bought and paid for. I have hired you with my son's mandrake plants. Another symptom of the polygamous household. What goes on? People have to compete. People have to barter for affections that should be theirs. Jacob has a duty toward Leah, his first wife. But he doesn't go to her tent that often. And the great thing, uh, to me, the, the great... I think Leah's interpretation of the whole event of her getting pregnant is completely off because she says, God has rewarded me because I gave my husband another woman. I don't think so, Leah. I don't think that that's really what it is. But I, do, I am glad that you had a baby and that you had your baby without the magic potion. That you trusted God to give you a baby instead of the mandrake plants. All right. And in the end, she has six sons and a daughter. And in my mind, I don't know. I, I don't know if, if theologians would agree with me or not. But now she's had seven children. And remember, in the Bible, seven has this feeling of complete and total, whole, lacking nothing. It's seven. It's perfect. It lacks nothing. And so at the end of her life, Leah has now had seven, seven children, six sons and a daughter. And I think in the male-dominated world in which that was, that was exactly what you wanted. Six sons and a daughter. Because you've got to have daughters. You can't just have all, not all families can have all sons. Sorry, that won't work out for us. Somebody's got to have some daughters. So six sons and a daughter. And she says, I'm now complete. I have nothing. Nobody can ever say that I didn't do my duty. I am not a woman who was ever lacking towards her husband. I gave him seven children. He could not ask for anything more from me. And he says, she, so she says, surely, surely he'll give me some honor. I don't know if he did or not, but she can at least hold her head high. All right. How would Rachel, what, what's the end of it here for Rachel? There, in, in this whole saga, there are times you feel bad for Rachel. There are times you feel bad for Leah. And so we just, uh, uh, every few verses, you, you, you switch sympathies. So we're going to switch sympathies again back to Rachel. Verse 22, then God remembered Rachel. Remember, she's had no children uh, through her own body yet. She has only had them through a surrogate. She claimed those perfectly as her own, and that was completely customarily appropriate. But finally, in the end, God listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. So she named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me another son. And um, when you see what she said there, uh, there's a sort of a, it's very worshipful and mathematical. And God has subtracted the disgrace. The thing I hated and despised about myself the most, the fact that I was barren and had no children. God subtracted that and then added uh, a son to me. So God is, God is the God of math. He subtracted and he added to me. And then he, she said, hey, Maybe he'll add another, yet another son to me uh, as well. Because Joseph kind of means add. May the Lord add. Uh, so she's uh, signifying that Joseph is the addition, but she wants yet another uh, addition to herself. And Rachel will end up being very honored. I think both of the, the wives, both of the slave girls, the slave girls, when you look at who their children were, there was nobody famous in all of Israel, really, from their tribes. That's the sort of the... Uh, the long and short of it right there. Uh, but from, 
from uh, Leah. There were definitely there was definitely a lot of famous people. Um, the the whole uh, the whole Levite tribe came from her, and they were the priests before God. So she got the honor that her descendants would be the priests, and they would be the people that are the go-between, the mediators between the people and God, acting like a Christ figure for them. Uh, and then later on, Judah, Judah would, would produce the kings of Israel, the greatest kings of Israel, David, Solomon, Josiah, later on, and then ultimately, of course, um, Jesus, who is the lion from the tribe of Judah. They all come from Leah's side. Um, but for what Rachel lacks in quantity, she makes up for in quality. Not that you can get better than Jesus or anything, but uh, her son Joseph, very immediately in the very next generation, is also going to be a sort of a Christ figure. You see, God's promise to Abraham was, all the nations of the world will be blessed through you, through your family. And Joseph is going to be the first greatest one to do that. In the next generation, there's going to be a famine, a famine that lasts for many years, a famine that affects the whole Mediterranean world. And there's only going to be one country that has any food, and it will be because Joseph had the prophecy that this was going to happen, and Joseph oversaw the preparation for it, and Joseph oversaw all of the administration of charity and food during that entire time. He will save the world. A famine came that would have wiped out so much of the population, except for Joseph. Leah gets her honor now in the quantity of sons she had, and she gets her honor in who comes from her that she will never even know about for a long time. And then Rachel gets hers more immediately, and that her sons will be the most favored from Jacob, and in the very next generation, one of her sons will save not only her family, but all the families around. All right. Let's come back to you and who you are. These women were striving. And they were striving for very temporal things that were just right in front of them. Just the family, just right here, just right now. They were striving and exhausting themselves, competing with each other for this right now having no idea the foresight of God, what he was going to do with the whole family later on. And I don't know about you. I don't know what you're striving for right now. I don't know what you're exhausting yourself for right now. But I want you to know a couple of things. Number one, Jesus made you unique. You are who you are. You are not who everybody else is. God has created you and gifted you for a very specific work that is only for you to do. And I don't want you to think that you're worthless or that God has no meaning or purpose for your life or that you have no gifting or no talent. You may not know what it is. You may not have developed it very much, but you've got something. And you've got something that this church needs. And we need you to pray, think, look inwardly and say, God, what have you gifted me towards? What is my place? And, and don't in your prayer say, oh, I want to be like that person, or I want to be like that person. Lord, I want to be me, who you've called to be me, right here to do the, jo the job, the work in the church, and in the world that I've got to do. And help me to 
put everything else aside. Help me to stop striving to please other people or to impress other people, to get the approval of other people. Lord, help me to just be me to be and throw everything else aside. And as a church, uh, I, I was thinking about this, this too. It's a good idea always when you apply these passages to apply it to individuals. Apply it to yourself first, preacher, and then apply it to everybody uh, in the congregation as well. And then apply it to us as a group, us as a group, this congregation as a group. Even earlier in this week, I was having a conversation with a group of men. Uh, and in that, in that conversation, uh, it's, not that, it's not that we were just comparing ourselves to another church, or not that we were just uh, saying, oh, if only whatever, like another church, or oh, we're better than blah, 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 as in, like this, than this other church. You see, it, it can even happen for a congregation, especially for the leadership of a congregation, to not look at other churches as uh, co-laborers, but to look at other churches as competitors. We're McDonald's and they're Burger King. How do we compete with them? No. That's not the way it is at all. I don't know what I'd compare us to uh, besides a church. Maybe more like a, a hospital or something like that. There's plenty of sick people to go around. There's plenty of hurting out there. If you were in a city where one hospital was completely overwhelmed, wouldn't you hope that another hospital was coming in to help take up some of the slack, to give you some relief? If you were a burger joint, maybe you wouldn't want another burger joint in town. You'd want to have the monopoly. But if you were an outward-focused, loving group of people, wouldn't you say, hallelujah, we've got help? A week or so ago, I did some research, and I discovered that within about 10 miles of this, this building right here, there are 18,000 people. 18,000 people. And that didn't count the city of Richmond. We have a big Richmond contingent in our church. But that didn't count Richmond. And this is me just doing all my guesstimating. Only about 8% of those 18,000 people go to church. Okay? Only about 8%? Good grief. And if every church around more or less had about uh, 100 people, we'd still only be about 10% uh, of that, uh, be able to reach or, or hold in our congregations about 10%. Folks, other churches are not our competition. They are people that we need to help them, and they need to help us, too. So we have to stop our striving, even in our good work for the Lord, we can strive for the wrong reasons. Let's always be checking our hearts. For you in your life, always be checking your heart. What am I striving for? What am I trying to get? What am I trying to win at? And I don't want you to give up the idea of winning or achieving or, or building or doing something. God put you here to glorify Him. And you don't do that by having no goals and no good ambition. You have to have that. But why do I want this thing? Do I just want it because they have it? Or do I want it because I want it? Is this a good work for me to do? Is this a good thing for me to do? Is this a good thing for our church to do? Does our church need this? Does God really want us to go in this direction, do this thing? Or do we just have to do this because every church does this? We have to do some soul searching. Because God has gifted you individually and even this church individually to be unique. Because this place will be more comfortable for some people than other churches. 
There are people who come here. This church didn't do it for them. They went to another church, I hope, and they found a place to worship and serve, I hope. And if they did, I'm glad. We have to stop striving. We have to stop exhausting ourselves to beat other people. We've only got one enemy, and that is the prince of the pal- the, the principalities of the power of the air, the devil, evil in the world. That's our only competition. That we want to beat. We can have confidence. The gates of hell will not prevail against uh, the church. So we can strive and rest at the same time. We can work and do a good work and take our Sabbath when we need it. And we can do what we do and what the Lord has called us to do, but we don't have to do everything. We don't have to do everything just to compare and to compete with others. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you that we have rest in you. We can lay down the burden that society puts on us, and we can take up your burden, which is light, and you carry all the weight. Lord, help us to be good workers. Help us to be good resters as well. Help us to always have foresight to see what you're doing with us now and in the future, in the next generation. Help us to see far down the road and not sacrifice the future just for the present. We love you and we thank you for the word and what it teaches us. Help us to emulate you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. You're dismissed. Have a great day.